0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Biden administration plans to release millions of COVID-19 booster shots to eligible adults later this month. On today's show, we learn all about boosters, how they work, and why they might be needed. We also look at potential solutions in the fentanyl crisis. And we look back at how some Coloradans were marking the early anniversaries of 9-11. Those stories coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Last month, the Biden administration committed to providing tens of millions of COVID-19 booster shots to vaccinated adults by September 20th. As of now, the FDA has only approved booster shots for people who are immunocompromised. Research trials testing the impact of booster shots are still underway, and some scientists say Biden's September goal may be too ambitious. Now, for a lot of us, this is all starting to feel a bit confusing. So we reached out to Dr. Thomas Campbell, a professor of medicine and chief clinical research officer for UC Health. He joins us now to talk about the science behind booster shots and how they might impact the spread of coronavirus. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, before we dive into the conversation, let's define what a booster shot is. The the
1: way a booster shot is being defined is that this is a, uh, in the case of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, a third dose. Uh, In the case of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, a second dose that's given to people who have normal immune systems and would have responded fully to uh, the first uh, dose or the first two doses. And the booster dose is being given to Boost or or heighten the immune response to the covid nineteen virus, ok.
0: And how does this compare to getting, say, a yearly flu shot? Is that considered a booster dose, or is that a separate vaccine, you know, that's tailored for whatever strain of the flu is out in circulation?
1: yeah, the the uh, yearly flu um, vaccine uh, that we get, and I just got mine last week, as a matter of fact. Um, is a combination of of both of those things. So it is tailored to uh, the circulating strains of uh, influenza in that uh, season um, and or what we anticipate will be coming uh, at us. Uh, and it it also uh, provides a boosting against uh, influenza in general.
0: Well, let's talk about this proposed booster for Covid. Um, How much does resistance to COVID-19 wane after getting vaccinated and, you know, getting fully immunized, let's say, with one dose of Johnson & Johnson or two of Moderna or Pfizer?
1: Yeah, uh, I've not seen uh, data yet for uh, uh, going out for too far with uh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, Most of the data that I've seen have concerned the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and um, what, uh, what's what been seen in the clinical trials, so these are clinical trials or highly controlled experiments, uh, so to speak, with um, many, many thousands of participants. Uh, and both Pfizer and Moderna uh, have data from their clinical trials. In the case of Pfizer, uh, between four to six months, protection drops a, a little bit. And um, when we're talking about protection, it's important to define what type of protection we're talking about. And in this case, I'm talking about protection against any symptomatic uh, COVID-19 illness. With Moderna, they didn't see that drop in the four to six month period. And their efficacy in their clinical trial uh, was similar at four to six months as it was in uh, earlier in the trial. The other uh, source of data that we have is from real world effectiveness studies. So these are studies that have looked at the millions of people who have received uh, vaccines as part of uh, uh, their care. And uh, they estimate how well the vaccines are working in those real world settings. And uh, the data that we've seen uh, suggests that both Pfizer and Moderna drop off in terms of real world effectiveness against uh, symptomatic uh, COVID, less of a drop-off against hospitalization or more serious outcomes. So still highly protective uh, against the, what we really want to do is and keep people out of the hospital and keep people die- from dying from COVID. And the drop-off appears to be a little bit more for Pfizer than for Moderna in those studies.
0: And I want to ask about the data um, because it's very hard to come by, perhaps because this is all happening in real time, so to speak. People who are just part of the sort of regular population here in Colorado started to get vaccinated March, April, uh, and that kind of thing. It, how does that impact our understanding of how booster shots might work?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point, because uh, the clinical trial data now, that's coming from people who got their first uh, doses uh, a year ago. Um and the uh, real world data uh, comes from people who started getting doses as early as, say, late December, early January. So timing is is very, uh, very important. You know for people who have gotten their doses more recently, you know, late spring, early summer, they're probably not anywhere, you know in in any concern for for dropping off yet. The other important factor that uh, concerns these real world effectiveness studies, is that in addition to the distance between the last dose and where we currently are, the other important thing is that we now have uh, uh, the Delta variant, which is the predominant uh, strain of the virus here in the US. And The vaccine effectiveness specifically against that variant also appears to be less. So there's a couple of of things going on simultaneously that affect the overall effectiveness of
0: the vaccines. We're speaking with Dr. Thomas Campbell, who is the chief clinical research officer for UC Health. I want to break down two groups of people who may be receiving a booster shot. Let's start with people who are immunocompromised. Currently, that's the only group with access to booster shots now. Why might an immunocompromised person need a booster?
1: The terminology for uh, a third vaccine for immunocompromised individuals is a bit different. And we distinguish that from the booster shots that we've been talking about. And for immunocompromised uh, people, people who have had uh, treatment for cancer, who have had solid organ transplants, who uh, have uh, conditions that require them to take immunosuppressive medications or have uh, untreated HIV infection, their immune systems are are not um, able to respond as well to vaccines, not just the COVID vaccines, but all vaccines. And what we know is after the two standard doses for say Moderna or Pfizer, these individuals don't generate the same intensity of immune response and the same protection against COVID that people who are not immunosuppressed do. So for these immunosuppressed uh, people we refer to this as a, as an additional dose or a third dose because they never quite got to the level of protection that they needed from two doses, and the third dose is designed to help get them to that level.
0: And then let's talk about another group, people who actually did gain strong protection against COVID-19 from one of the other available vaccines. Um, why might these people get a booster shot?
1: People who have strong responses, the, the problem we're facing is number one, that there is evidence that the pr- protection and the strength of the response can decrease over time. And then uh, the uh, second thing that we've already mentioned uh, is the uh, effect of the Delta variant and how it may um, require uh, more uh more immunity, or what I should say is maybe a stronger uh, um, uh, immune response to protect against Delta.
0: And that brings us back to the Delta variant and other variants, which have been driving up case numbers in the last few months. How effective do we anticipate booster shots might be against variants?
1: We don't have a lot of, uh, of data to uh, to guide us on that. There are some data that have come from Israel that suggests that uh, booster shots uh, uh, do help protect against Delta. From the uh, data that uh, Pfizer and Moderna are generating from their clinical trials of boosters, we know that uh, the booster does increase the level of of antibody that neutralizes the uh, Delta virus. Uh, So we think that boosters will provide added protection, but we don't have a lot of data yet to actually know if that's the case for sure.
0: And are booster shots just another dose of the vaccine that we have now, perhaps one that we already got, or are boosters being developed right now specifically with variants in mind?
1: So both Pfizer and Moderna are testing uh, booster vaccines that are specific for certain variants. Uh, And from what I've heard so far, is that the response that they get from those va- uh, variant specific vaccines in a booster is not that different from uh, getting a boost with the same vaccine uh, that we all got uh, earlier in the year. So uh, these data will be reviewed by the FDA in the coming weeks uh, and uh, it'll be important to stay tuned and, and to see what those, uh, what those data look like. Not much has been released uh, in in the public uh, uh, specter, uh, in the public sphere yet.
0: Well, lastly, do you think that President Biden's goal to release millions of boosters by September 20th is an idea that makes sense? I, I know there are questions about it. Uh, what, what do you think about this plan?
1: It may make sense, but I think it's important that we follow the science and uh, we need to see what the data are. Uh, for boosters in terms of uh, their both their safety and their uh, efficacy. And um, those data will be reviewed uh, by the uh, Food and Drug Administration here uh, in the coming weeks uh, and by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And once we see what those data look like, we'll have a much better idea of what the safety and the efficacy is. So I think it's important not to put policy in front of the science and let the science drive the policy.
0: Dr. Thomas Campbell is a professor of medicine and the chief clinical research officer for UC Health. Dr. Campbell, thank you very much for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this week, we talked about how the potentially deadly drug fentanyl is coming into the Mountain West region and how cops and courts are responding. Now, Madeline Beck wraps up our series with a look at what tools we have or could get to help slow fentanyl deaths.
2: One tool to prevent overdose deaths is fentanyl test strips. They often look like little blue and white scraps of paper and work like a pregnancy test. One line shows up if there's fentanyl in a solution, two lines if there's none. Fentanyl test strips are a very basic level of prevention. Erin Porter works for a program that targets drug trafficking in Oregon and Idaho. She says Oregon health officials give test strips to users so they can tell whether their drugs have fentanyl in them. The test strips are really sensitive. So what we want people to do is just test the residue. They aren't perfect. Porter says fentanyl sticks together in pills and powders like chocolate chips and cookies. If you test a bit that isn't touching fentanyl, there's a chance the strip won't test positive. But, she says, people want to know what they're using. And many avoid fentanyl. It's not only deadly, but she says you often need to use fentanyl again faster to avoid withdrawal. When someone is in the throes of substance use disorder, they're just trying to not be sick. The CDC estimates there were more than 90,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. last year. A record. And health experts say a big factor was synthetic opioids like fentanyl. There are other efforts to avoid fentanyl deaths, too, like increasing access to naloxone, which can reverse opioid overdoses, or decreasing stigma around addiction and improving access to addiction treatment test strips are relatively low cost and may be easier to dole out than building new clinics or changing long-held stigmas. The strips can also change people's behavior. Many of them took subsequent overdose prevention steps. That's Jacqueline Goldman with Brown University. Goldman led a study in 2019 that showed young Rhode Island adults with the test strips did things like avoid drugs and used slower. The study had a small sample of about 90 people. Now, Goldman is working on a larger clinical trial to give the federal government more guidance about test strips. We will be recruiting 500 people who use drugs who are between ages of 18 and 65. In April, federal agencies, including the CDC, said states could use federal grant money to buy fentanyl test strips. But there's a catch. Fentanyl test strips are actually illegal in many Mountain West states, like New Mexico, Utah, and Idaho. Drug tests are included in their definition of illegal drug paraphernalia. Nevada changed its law this year to allow for fentanyl test strips. aye,
1: aye. Any opposed? Motion passes unanimously. Goldman
2: says the tests could be helpful everywhere. It's not just about giving the fentanyl test strips, but really showing people how,
0: why they can be useful in preventing overdose.
2: But where are they needed most? It's hard to say with limited data. The Mountain West was the last region to feel the brunt of the opioid epidemic or fentanyl products. Like many other black markets, it spread from cities and the coasts to more rural areas. But now fentanyl is here and people are dying. Chris Gibson directs the Oregon-Idaho HIDA, or High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. These federally funded HIDA programs are all over the U.S. They aim to reduce drug trafficking, increase interagency cooperation, and provide training. Gibson says his Oregon team has worked for decades on finding and aggregating data on overdoses and fentanyl, but states like Idaho and Montana have only had the last few years to start catching up
1: one of the things that our program did was it funded, and it is funding, um, an intelligence analyst in Idaho.
2: That person would find and aggregate data from around the state once they're hired. But Gibson says they need faster data everywhere, even Oregon. It should be as close to real-time as possible so we know exactly where people are overdosing, when they're dying, and from what.
1: The more proactive you can be in getting out in front of something, the more likelihood you're going to have of, of having a positive impact.
2: So he's promoting tools like ODMAP, which allows first responders to log overdose information after assisting a victim. He says if we can at least track dangerous batches of drugs, states can work together to stop their spread and warn the public.
0: For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find all the stories in our fentanyl series at KUNC.org. As we look ahead to the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, we want to take a moment to listen back to how some northern Colorado residents were feeling on the first and the third anniversaries. I'm joined now by KUNC's Director of News, Brian Larson. Thank you for being here, Brian. Hi, Aaron. Now, the KUNC newsroom was uh, quite a bit smaller in 2002 than it is now. So how did you approach the anniversary coverage back then?
3: Well, you are right. There were only three of us, and we had to decide how to mark a moment that physically took place some 1,800 miles away, but yet impacted all of us. So it really came down to resources. One of my colleagues went To Fort Collins to talk with organizers of public remembrance events and those who were participating in them. I stayed in Greeley and my approach was a bit more subdued. While many attended public Public gatherings 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 to commemorate the anniversary of September September 11, 11, others marked the day much much like like they would would any other day by having coffee at Starbucks. Bob Mock was visiting with a friend before going to work. For him, the day needed to be remembered, but sticking with the routine was equally important. I'm not trying to avoid anything. I'm just going to work and doing what I would normally do. This evening we'll watch it on TV. I listen to it on the radio, and while I'm
1: going around today, I'll listen to it on the radio, but that's about it.
3: Lisa Charbonneau put up an American flag and said a prayer with her two children before sending them to school. She was skipping her morning workout in order to reflect
2: reflecting on what it's, how lucky we are, how fortunate we are to have the freedoms we have, and um, just sadness in, in my heart still. When you see all the headlines this morning and, and think about how many people lost their lives and, and that kind of thing, so it just, just kind of feels like a day to reflect and relax about it.
3: Jim McAaron was sitting outside reading the Greeley Tribune. Like many others, he wanted to remember those lost in the attacks. That meant spending some time to himself on his day off and having quiet time with his family. I think it's important for everybody to reflect back on their lives, their families, their friends, what life means to them, what's important in life, and the events that led up to this and where we're going from here, because as we all know, obviously life in this country and life in the world has changed from that day forward. McEwen was also paying his respect by wearing a stars and stripes shirt, and a blue NYPD baseball cap. Well, it's special to me because it came from a New York police officer that was given to a retired Detroit police officer, which was brought home here to Greeley for me, and I worked for the Greeley Police Department, so it's very special to me. And I saved it; I didn't wear until the day one year later to honor the memories. Kate Rithers was having her coffee with a friend from Longmont she feels people don't need public ceremonies to remember September 11th. For her, the day was out of balance since other anniversaries like Pearl Harbor and the Oklahoma City bombing are seemingly forgotten.
2: This is so fresh in people's minds, that's why why they're they're doing what they're doing with all the memorials and I, I think it's great for those people that need to go there and find the tranquility and be able to remember the tragedy that happened last year but as far as I'm concerned, it, it is another glorious day, and I'm happy to have a day, and I'm sorry those people that were killed a year ago You know, had to end their lives so suddenly.
3: Whether it was spending time alone or with friends, the freedom for these individuals to do their own thing was in itself an act of defiance, since that's what the terrorists tried to take away.
0: That story was last heard on KUNC on the afternoon of September 11, 2002. Now, Brian, you also covered another 9 11 anniversary.
3: Yes, this one was in 2004. And at that time, I did want to hear from people who were attending a public memorial event. And this time, it was a healing field, which is made up of American flags.
1: There are
2: 50 flags in a row, and there are 10 rows in a section and six sections. And the very last one has two Charles less, because there was 2,998, so it's not an even 3,000.
3: Karen Zach is a member of the Exchange Club of Greeley. The organization is sponsoring the healing field, one flag for each person lost in the terrorist attacks. Planning for the community event began in early January. It culminated on Thursday.
1: Now, I'm having the rest of them lay out the rebar. So
3: Hundreds of volunteers, young, old, stranger, and friend, spent the afternoon fastening flags onto white, eight-foot tall pieces of PVC pipe that were capped with a gold ball.
1: Well, it's just 4 o'clock. It's just time to start. Are we haven't fun yet? Others
3: pounded three-foot sections of green rebar into the ground. The rest, each with their own story and reason for being here, waited for their turn to post the colors.
0: My name's Zelda Bruner. My oldest daughter, Sherry Jerky from Grapevine, Texas, took me there for my birthday. One thing that's real vivid in my mind is Fire Station 54 that lost all of their men went by us, and the guys were sitting in the truck looking up at us, just grinning and waving, and I, I can still see them to this day, and in a few minutes they were gone. That's one reason why I wanted to come out here, because I just felt like a part of it.
3: I'm Doug Smith, I'm just out here to help out. Tell me about the experience. I'm hearing the names called, and I'm visualizing how many people this represents. And it's pretty staggering.
2: I'm Nancy Lightfoot, and I live here in Greeley.
3: How many flags have you taken out so far?
2: Oh, probably about five, five or six.
3: What's it like as we walk up here to put this down?
2: It's, it's sort of overwhelming when you, you look at all the flags that are out there already and then all the spikes that are left to go. And then the other thing that's sort of emotional is when you hear the names called and you'll hear, you know, like four or five names with all the same last name and you realize that the whole family was probably killed in that attack Arthur T. Barry, Diane G. Barry, Maurice Vincent Barry.
1: My name's Travis Little, and
3: I'm from James Fort a. Collins, o- Colorado. I don't know, I just
1: Timothy Michael o- felt a. I should come
3: O'Brien. out. Makes you think.
0: There's Richard D. J. O'Neill.
3: A lot of flags out here.
2: Maureen Summers. I'm from Greeley.
3: Gordon, and Maureen, why are you out here today?
2: To remember.
1: Peter J. My daughter
2: Pepper is a New Yorker, and she lost a very dear friend.
1: And we miss her friend also. Virginia a.
3: The procession of volunteers, many of whom went back for flags dozens of times, continued until the last flag was put in place about 3 hours and 20 minutes after the first one. As one volunteer told me at the end of the night, you can't experience the magnitude without being here. To further drive home the enormity of loss on that Tuesday morning almost three years ago, the names of each of the 2,998 victims will be attached to the flags by children from area middle schools. And like Thursday, each of the names will be read out loud during special ceremonies taking place later today and on Saturday. The healing field itself runs through Sunday.
0: That was KUNC's Director of News, Brian Larson, sharing stories from his September 11th reporting archive. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. NPR will have extensive coverage of the 20th anniversary of the attacks and its impacts on the U.S. during Weekend Edition and Weekend All Things Considered, as well as on our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Coming up tomorrow, jobs in Colorado are changing, and now an increasing number require a college degree or credential. The Colorado Dream Career Education is a special series from KUNC's Stephanie Daniel. It examines how a small metro Denver school district is playing a greater role in training tomorrow's workforce. Join KUNC for the Colorado Dream this Friday at 2.30 and at 6.30. You can also find it online at KUNC.org. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.